encore une fois.
So I had to use a fisheye lens and even the shots that I've able, been able to get or, you know, don't do it justice. is just so big from the ground. You can't even see the head. Hmm. So uh, <laughs> when you're underneath it, that is. Yes. It's exciting that right now to be discovering all these additional wisdoms that we have not had to uh, noodle around in our mind. <laughs> so I thank you for being one of the wisdom keepers. Where I'd like to start off for the listeners to ease them into our dialogue is Ayurveda, which may seem complex, but I feel is such an intuitive system for people to connect with, and one that I notice you carry throughout most of your work. If you can share with the listener how you connect with Ayurveda and how you're integrating into your work right now in Lamana. Wow, there's so many aspects to that. I don't know where to begin, Um, but Perhaps maybe the study of water is the most central aspect to what I've been applying here in Lamana and the reason for my being here. Um, and of course, the understanding of ancient Sanskrit culture is what's really driven um, a lot of people today to realize that Ayurveda is a system of knowledge that is very much alive because it is based on the living principles. So. Um, It may come to us from ancient times, but it's a tradition that speaks to all, to natural living, which is all uh, all present, I believe, in terms of, you know, the depth of meaning there. So um, my personal journey really started from my own meditation and research. And like many people, I was exposed to Eastern traditions and Buddhism and um, in particular found that these wisdom traditions took on so many forms after the original teaching was was offered. Um, And so I found it really fascinating to go back to and look at the original forms and original source documents to realize that what we're told about the Mayan cultures or the Nahuatl traditions um, throughout uh, North America, um, and indeed all of the cultural traditions in these so-called Neolithic times or Paleolithic times, you know, the whole um, vagueness with which uh, cultural knowledge seems to dissipate into when you go back that far. Um, I, in my books, really uh, present to people the facts that there are artifacts from all around the world that show the same symbols, um, the same exact, for example, reptilian figures who look like you know extraterrestrial abductees are describing in their experiences. And we have artifacts in my books I'm presenting um, in five, particularly my first book, from China, and as well from Lamana, here there's a collection where there are many astounding artifacts, among which are representations of reptilian beings um, in the same pose presented in the artifacts from the same time period in China. So these are Atlantean artifacts, um, which, and I believe Atlantis was a global civilization. And so that's um, that's the root of Ayurveda, I believe, in the Sanskrit tradition, which corresponds directly with the artifacts and the imagery and symbolism that we have today maintained in the Indian um, subcontinent. But in you know the rest of the world, I've been able to show in my books and display quite clearly artifacts that represent <clears throat> and present us with the same um, amazing Kundalini tradition as we have here in, in Ecuador, as well as several places in the Andean uh, traditions throughout um, North and South America, Central America, and indeed in Africa and Asia as well. So the Sanskrit tradition, the mandalas, 
these things are known and, and associated with the ancient teachings from the Mayans, which I like to bring to the fore because I do believe that they have um, maintained their tradition so well. So for me, Ayurveda is a very open um, definition of all these ancient global cultures that were using pyramids together and using the mandala as a mathematical formula to live by. As you relate making that jump from Atlantis and then everything known from India right now, however, you're really connecting it to the Mayans, the, the Ayurveda, where would you say that common thread between those two right now is? Well, I think there are so many parallels. It's almost, um, well, certainly uh, there are temples in Borobudur in Indonesia, south of India, where we find Buddhist um, traditions today um, inhabiting the temples and pre preserving them. And at these, they're, very, they're step pyramids with central stairwells that lead to square buildings on top, just like we see in the Mayan land. So I think it's you know fascinating to look at those the parallels architecturally in structures that were built around the same period uh, in history, and probably previously to that were consistently being built um, throughout history because we see various construction styles, various sizes of stones, um, and of course the lime <clears throat> the limestone beds throughout the Central American regions were what really and the water uh, moving through them and creating cenotes and the energy that that comes from the movement of these of, of liquids and this water through the limestone um, really increases the effect of the temple's piezoelectric transduction of sound waves. And I believe that the different pyramid sites were geopositioned and the mathematics of that geopositioning, just like the mathematics of the structures of the temples themselves and the buildings, the geopositions also convey this mandala structure, which we see from an aerial view above one of the pyramids. And if we follow those energy lines in the eight directions from each of the sites, then we start to discover a global grid, which is what I've detailed in um, my writings and my website very clearly using hundreds of GPS points to document energy events, including crop circles, um, explosions, spontaneous combustion of human beings, spontaneous fires witnessed, um, all kinds of different events, spontaneous explosions, um, gas mains, pipelines, you name it. Um, so there's so many events that I've been able to look at from a new, a whole new standpoint and look at their geoposition and prove that the energy relationship with the pyramids is quite clear and that these can be understood in a new way that the rest of the scientific world has not considered, uh, as far as I understand. And so when we're looking at that very macro vision, what have you gathered that these structures are laid out in a grid in strategic locations, that those were operated from systems from this planet or beyond? <clears throat> well, I think certainly the technology um, goes beyond our planet because it is such a natural technology that not only has it been brought here from other planets but it would evolve independently on other planets as well because it's functional so communication systems i think as they develop on any world technologically would arrive at this although i definitely believe that consciousness is linked and that of course uh, psychological um, telepathic influence is the real underlying nature of technological development 
And so, you know, inspiration, I believe, is always shared. And what you're doing in an inspired moment is channeling something. So, you know, from that standpoint, it, um, you know, technologies can be developed on different planets that are exactly similar. And it's simply, you know, as, of course, beings reincarnate on different planets in different roles with different levels of technology and awareness. So in my case, it's been really fascinating to see that, the geometric, you know, following the lines and the simple geometries presented at um, sites where Kalachakra wheels are painted um, in sand by the Tibetans or sites where Native Americans are, you know, doing the same thing, doing sand mandalas in um, the Hopi Four Corners area. You know, these, you know, you look at the language that, that um, the links in the languages and you see that not only is there the same geometry, the same um, geoposition going on, but the languages also have very special links in them. So in my books, I try to go into some of the details, although there's so many that I'm not, um, an, you know, a linguist and not an expert epigrapher. But I do try to apply the ancient um, uh, decipherment, the, apply a decipherment of the ancient uh, Sanskrit writing, so that we can prove linguistically as well as geometrically and symbolically. Um, mathematically that these cultures were all one. So um, that underlying framework is really, um, I connect in one of my books, uh, The Veil of Invisibility, with Tesla's work and the omissions of um, some of the most important discoveries that you know Tesla brought to the world and in fact did so in a way bypassing the theoretical stage because he simply knew how to build it and it worked for him. Um, so in this, in the work I'm doing right now, I'm looking to complete the theory whereby everyone can understand how Tesla's machines worked and how we can create ones that are more in line with the ancient tradition, which I believe the temples of the world are still functional machines, whereas certainly many of Tesla's machines are not, many of his prototypes are not. What about then the pyramids that are actually not visible or yet discovered. For instance, in other parts of the world, there's pyramids that have been emerging from the jungles. Do you foresee that those will continue to reveal themselves as maybe the activation between these temples starts <laughs> to take place? Definitely. And I think there are, it's fascinating to watch because there are, um, just like I think two weeks ago, a week and a half ago, there was a new hotspot um, appearing in the ground in Cartagena, Colombia. And so that's uh, following a pattern that I've observed at other sites, like in the U.S., in Colorado Springs, there was a similar event where smoke was, you know, coming out of the ground and a playground, actually, a child's uh, feet were burned and at a playground and, you know, took everyone by surprise, melted his shoes, and the same thing has been happening. No one's been injured, but at sites in Hope Ranch in near Santa Barbara, and not from not far from there, a site at the Los Padres um, State Park in near uh, just in the I think, north of Santa Barbara area in the mountains there. So these sites are the ground is getting hot, and I think that there may be something under these sites, or there may be a history of. Um, ancient presence at these sites because of this same energy. So there's a whole new, uh, for example, underground sites, cave areas. Those uh, looking for these areas and looking for pyramids 
is one of the biggest um, uh, avenues for research that I've opened up with my mathematical discoveries involving the pyramids because this allows us to look at uh, certain very specific locations in a new way and try to investigate whether under the sands of the Sahara, for example, there may be many temples submerged or um, anomalies, for example, on the sea floor that investigators have not been able to understand from their perspective. And yet if we had, uh, apply a mathematic geoposition-based perspective, um, including, you know, looking at the structures on the seabed themselves. For example, in Cuba, off Cuba, there are structures um, recently in the Baltic Sea. These structures have been found a circular structure. So these are things that uh, many researchers have no way to get a handle on what they may be. And I think that they may have to do, in fact, with ancient Sanskrit traditions that were using mathematical geoposition um, systems that can be proven to be related with those objects with their location. So for me, that's going to be, um, you know, an, an expanding field of research that I'm really excited about. Beautiful. And aside from locating, in your opinion, how do you feel that we can use, utilize this technology as a human race to continue to evolve or resurrect this technology? Well, I think part of it has to do with um, accessing the available traditions that we have. Obviously, Ayurveda is here for us, and the Mayan tradition is still alive at their pyramids in Central America. So, you know, certainly all over the world, we have ancient cultural links that um, can be can be learned from in everyone's area. For example, you know, in, in the colonization of areas, they would gather up everyone and herd them off to a different area because they wanted to wipe out the ancient knowledge of where the sacred places were in that area. They wanted to remove people from their um, energy source. And so, you know, when we think about replacing the ancient knowledge, we really have to go to find locally who is connected to these ancient sites. And unfortunately, here in La Mana, there is no connecting indigenous cultural link to any of the artifacts found. And these artifacts are indeed uh, over 12,000 years old based on so many aspects of uh, the artifacts, which I discuss in my books. But, you know, frankly, the, the most astounding fact is that there are geometric formulas presenting it, presented in these um, stone artifacts from La Mana, Ecuador, that um, not only do they glow under UV light, but they also present the geometric formula for the crystallography of calcite. And so when I looked at that formula and the mathematics of that, it in fact explains how the ultraviolet fluorescence was occurring. And calcite is what the mineral that's inlaid in those uh, mandalas to glow under UV which informs us further that the calcite biomineralizations in our own pineal glands are themselves also UV fluorescent. And a lot of my most recent articles go into the connection between the UV fluorescence of um, the, I'm sorry, the UV light produced by HHO plasmas and the function of the pyramids in relation to HHO plasmas, like the one seen on the walls of the Dendera temple in Egypt, um, where many people have already acknowledged that there are plasma bulb devices being depicted in the bas-reliefs. Yes, I was looking at that one picture, and then I was also thinking metaphorically because of the lotus, which always is presented to 
many of us, but also the actual physical plant. In any of your studies with, uh, I know I'm jumping a little bit, but what do you feel was the integration of the plants with maybe the infrared light, with the sound, with the the structure? The structure do you mean exactly? Well, just like even the structure of the plant itself. Well, not the structure of the plant. I'm sorry, the structure of the pyramid. Let's say, for instance, you're you're within the pyramid structure. They're taking light and sound, and then plant organic plant matter in these chambers. What do you feel is the wisdom that potentially? Because I feel that a lot of people take aspects of it. They don't take like they may be taken by the actual structure, the architectural structure of the temple. but mm-hmm. And they might feel the presence of being in those chambers, uh, but they may not think of it on a global level, how they're communicating one from another, or maybe how beings transported from one to another all the way across the globe. And mm-hmm. so I'm curious in, in your research and in the depictions of the artifacts that you have, for instance, the lotus, um, there's different plant material, and in all, like Mayan, there's different plant, sacred plants that are definitely integrated in this process and how you feel they might be linked and help unlock some of this wisdom as we put together the pieces again. Well, I think <clears throat> a lot of the um, symbolism on all of the artifacts that I find from the Atlantean times really use the plant symbols as a way of um, providing a visual metaphor for the life force. So, for example, um, if we look at the Ica stones um, from Peru, that's a fascinating collection, which certainly is an Atlantean in origin and depicts dinosaurs and things from thousands or, excuse me, millions of years ago, that obviously these people living thousands of years ago and who left these artifacts were not interacting with, but perhaps were um, depicting because they knew of their existence from, from archaeology of their own um, doing. So, you know, there are collections like that where you, you know, if you connect where they are geographically, you know, where they were found, there's a, there's a clear line being made and, you know, within the life force focused by the pyramid structures. Um, and then the symbols used, for example, they'll have surgeries where patients are depicted lying on the tables and they have a leaf coming out of their mouth on a cord, kind of. So this, the symbolism from the Kundalini tradition of the aura and the energy body and the flows of energy, a grounding cord going to, going to the ground or an energy cord going off to um, a source of energy that's a source that's negative, that's um, usurping your energy. Um, there are all these images are presented in those ancient artifacts from Ica as, um, you know, as leaves coming out of the mouth or, you know, they'll have their guts completely open. There'll be an open uh, intestinal surgery going on and or the brain surgery going on. And obviously there's a the leaf is flowing into the healer and the healer sometimes is holding a stone implement into the uh, stomach of the patient. So these images are throughout, you know, from the Crespi Cuenca, Ecuador collection. Um, that collection is Atlantean and discussed in my books. And there are images of pyramids there with uh, elephants, which are not found in the Ecuador at that, you know, at that time. Um, there are also images of flowers and living uh, plants running up the pyramids and feline images as well. 
So all these sacred symbols, plants certainly were used in ancient times as a as a visual metaphor, and obviously these are all cultures which use all of the properties of the plants that we're just discovering today. Some of you know psychotropic properties as well as you know especially the healing properties and specific uses of various plants and the combinations of plants is obviously something that we're just learning today has a complex chemical formula. And that's why Ayurveda is so powerful for us. You know, when you look at an Ayurvedic recipe, it's given to you in a poetic form and it's given to you telling you what to do with different plants and what they're good for so that you can remember them in a, in a song-like form and walk through the woods and collect what you need. You know, so these natural technologies um, of, of knowing what chemical uh, compositions are in plants is really what is so astounding about the ancients. And, of course, we see that knowledge expressed in the stones of the structures themselves because, of course, they were artificially created, and so there's chemical residues left behind by the fact that they were poured by the chemical thermosetting process that took place using oxalic acids. What do you feel, then, with especially the the link between calcite uh, and within the structures and then under the introduction of light and then in our current condition, because as I was reading through one of your books, you were basically saying that, you know, no matter what is being imposed upon us, that potentially our consciousness can't be stopped. I'm paraphrasing. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Uh, So Mm -hmm. how do you think that people right now drawing that link from these the pyramid structures, the calcite and the calcite in the pineal gland, and then the calcite mm-hmm. that's in the earth, are you finding within the, the grid that's been mapped out that there are higher levels of calcite in these locations where these structures have been built and in addition to maybe national parks or well-known areas that are sacred regions of the world? Um, well, it's interesting because there has been a link, and I've, I've carried a story to this effect on my website, that the quartz um, deposits in the earth are being noted to be related to earthquake activity. And I think also we find that, the, for example, the ring of fire goes along the west coast of the, North, of the Americas. And, of course, these are the areas in the mountains there where we see major temples. Um, and, you know, major pyramid structures that, of course, are, I believe, using this acoustic energy which gets transduced in the stone, in the bedrock of the earth. So quartz is certainly an important factor. And I would say that limestone is so common throughout the world because all the sea, um, the seabeds lay down limestone, you know. So the earth, the bedrock of the earth itself is so resonant um, that, you know, certainly when you think about the amount of granite that's out there, um, and the huge plates of granite, you know, the Canadian Shield, all of these, um, you know, the, the Rockies are amazing granite formations that have, are containing mostly quartz. And, of course, these are what are lining the rose quartz chambers of the Great Pyramid. So quartz, um, inner stones, and then limestone, outer stones was what were used. Um, and that's pretty much what we see. in the areas where temples are prevalent around the world and pretty much most of the lithosphere. I mean, there's certainly the abundance of of limestone around the world. Um, So it's it's an amazing fact that pretty much any cave anywhere in the world can potentially have the energies that were being created in some of the pyramids. And I think ancient people were really 
um, doing a lot of their work, not only in interior chambers in the pyramids, but in the earth itself. And in fact, the research has shown that quite clearly, the more deep, the deeper you get into each pyramid site, the deeper you realize that not only are there tunnels below the site, but that in fact, these tunnels are connected to the other pyramid sites. And there's an entire system that's underground below the pyramid structures, which is in fact far older than the facades or the you know the structures as we see them today. So, for example, if we look at Teotihuacan Pyramid in Mexico, that structure is well known by native traditions to be a small structure placed atop a giant pyramid, which was once covered by earth changes and is still connected through the top of it um, to the structure that we see today. So um, it's, you know, there's so much to delve into here. Um, but I think the key is that the acoustic above ground, you know, below ground, the acoustic resonance um, of these energy points that I'm mapping really determines where giant cities can exist. And that's a fascinating topic, which most people have never even considered. Um, but the technologies of resonant uh, free energy production with HHO plasma derived from HHO gas, which is um, a dissolution of water molecules, uh, that technology allows for underground cities and, you know, transdimensional technologies, which allow spaces to be used deep in the earth, which most people have no consciousness of. And of course, when we look to the Mayan traditions, of course, they speak about uh, different underworlds. And of course, they speak of several levels and in detail of what these levels um, contain. So uh, there's a wealth of ancient knowledge that modern people have so little exposure to that I'm trying to bring to the to the fore um, simply because I have a new tool to look at it using mathematics. So, for example, underground cities um, are in alignment with above ground temple sites. And I think that's a kind of alignment that's occurring where the above ground, the surface dwellers on the earth will be aligning at our sacred sites for healing purposes because of the drastic toxification that we've incurred on our planet. So those of us now who are focusing on healing and providing pure waters and, you know, thinking about the problems of radiation and constant cleansing and using bioelectrification uh, is, is one of the solutions I'm applying, which is a Vedic solution. Um, you know, these are ways that we can get in touch with the temples and live in a more natural lifestyle and benefit from the changes instead of fear them. And so let's talk a little bit about that. So underground cities, and which I find kind of interesting because we, you know, have these structures that we can point out across the world, pyramid-like stru structures. But then there's a series of networks that are cave-like networks. For instance, there is one I know for certain uh, in the Grand Canyon, which is the point of emergence. And within that point of emergence, there's antiquities from Egypt, Anasazi, Hopi, Tibet, um, and those and tunnels going out from there. With, and I find it interesting, even in your other your book, um, Veil of Invisibility, you talk about the CIA being in tunnels in the national park in Montana. So much of this has been sealed off. Do you have a idea at what point we will need to re-enter those chambers or if at all and if it has it been a blessing that they've been actually sealed off and the energies that have been using them will hopefully be um, eradicated from this system. 
Well, I have a pretty unique perspective on all this and the earth changes, and it's one that really I've come to over years of research. I think that most people will have a really hard time um, handling <clears throat> on an intellectual level, but maybe on a heart level that might make sense in terms of karma. But I know for a fact that the confidence in the Tesla's, Tesla's stolen technologies um, and the control of, of the human consciousness that um, that they have affected through the media and through cell phone and all this uh, wave interference in our bodies so that our telepathy, our capacity for telepathy and the use of these pyramids is shut down. All of that technology has worked so well for these, um, you know, agents of dark energies that are, you know, subverting his, his ideas. Um, that they're they're really in a dissonance gap with these changes, which they're not going to be able to overcome, I believe, because, you know, if you think about, for example, right now in the White House, they're trying to create air conditioning systems. It's such a, a huge complex below the White House, apparently, that the air conditioning and everything has to be redone so that they can, um, you know, just maintain down there for the new construction. So, you know, all the expansions, <clears throat> everything that I see that they are doing, the powers that be, um, are not prepared for the changes and are so um, so heavily based in industrial concepts which are failing us constantly that the changes, I think, will really overcome all of these technologies. And we've already seen this in terms of satellites that are exposed to these energies. Um, but... I think the International Space Station is in grave danger, and in my books I give very clear evidence as to um, how exactly this will occur, that the electrical surges from solar flares will cause short out of that equipment. Um, and now this is commonly understood, really, by most scientists, that this is an inevitability with the solar activity and the next solar maximum is, of course, at the end of the year in 2012. So all of this comes together to really point to me to the fact that you know agencies like NASA the people are being put at risk, you know, to send up, send them up into space, knowing what we know that, you know, a person like me who's just on their own reporting what they see and applying physics as it's known, you know, I can show that it's, it's being horrendously, you know, risks are being horrendously taken. And we see that in the economic state. They make, you know, in any, any nuclear reactor having been built was a horrendous risk taken and a horrible one. And you look at the economic situation, any, you know, bailout ever taken was a horrendous mistake that, you know, was was just so obviously set up to be the opposite of what it was, um, you know, called. So this inversion that's happening throughout the industrialization of our planet is going to cause it to go under with the changes. And that's what I'm really looking forward to is, is um, the time that we'll be rebuilding after these changes. And I hope to, you know, really... Um, survive any any negative energy that comes here through the knowledge of the earth and through the ancient wisdom that we're provided with because they do tell us that that is the way to survive and that's very possible so i think you know in my own life i'm making quick decisions right now to deal with the quick changes that are happening i encourage everyone out there to consider the ancient wisdom at these times because you know, now is not the time to be in a high-rise building. You know, I don't want to panic people, but look around you. The people who are telling us these are safe are themselves in trouble and running. You know, there are yachts burning, and there, you know, you go, go through my website, and you can see hundreds of cases where 
major, major problems are happening in areas that are not going away. They're getting worse. You know, Windsor, Ontario, uh, ranch lands in Calgary, Alberta. These locations are increasingly getting um, inundated with sound waves that are making people unable to live there comfortably. And soon they're going to be in danger because the acoustic energy is building fires. And of course, that's a big part of my the role of my website is to put together and link all of these anomalous fires or spontaneous fires, as they're being called, which are happening around the world right now, exactly in relation to these same events, which I'm describing potentially will destroy the ISS, the International Space Station. So it's a fascinating um, contradiction that we have these underground structures where people are going to be making bunkers where it's all running on AC. It's all running on air conditioning. What do you think is going to happen in these places? Like the Bible's idea of hell sounds to me like pretty ridiculous, but those are ridiculous underground structures that were built. And that sounds to me like the closest thing I can think of to hell <laughs> being stuck down there. Yes. <laughs> Uh, it's not fun to suffocate. <laughs> Share with the listeners a little bit about the acoustic impact that we're having coming from space weather. And in addition, do you have any correlation with what's also being sent to us just by the pure technology that we use, cell phones, harp? Because I always connect with if the pyramids were set in place, uh, if that's our telepathic network, which we can go a little bit more in depth. But if you can sh first share the space weather, and then we'll go into that. I'm not even going to start it. It's <laughs> going into two conversations at once. Okay. Well, thank you. Um, yeah, the space weather is a phenomenon which, you know, anyone looking at the sun closely has seen massive changes on its surface and explosive events where matter was ejected or plasma was ejected um, that has, you know, completely changed the environment. And I think the last major event, which I've logged on my website, was occurring as far as being measured on our planet, as far as, you know, being directed at us. There was a major event um, on September 8, 2011, where um, fascinating series of stories popped up in the media, which I followed, which I think give us an idea of how the solar changes uh, which may be influenced by exterior sources. And the Mayans tell us there's a super galactic wave coming at us right now. Um, that's a whole other topic. But at least locally with our planet and the way the sun is acting up, I think that the series of stories from the 8th of September was remarkable because it showed us, first of all, the CME was heading our way, expected to arrive. And then in uh, Sweden, there was a... Uh, some instrumentation um, that had recorded the magnetic shockwave of the CME arriving, as well as enhanced ground currents, electrical ground currents. Uh, so that station right there and the story they published um, really is a linchpin for my work because that's what I was predicting years ago, uh, that I could link these things together and show that, in fact, the ground state on the Earth is directly um, in uh, influenced by solar flare activity only through and as mitigated by the lithosphere of the Earth and the acoustic energy of the Earth um, because the pyramids themselves are giant artificial geometric mountains which direct sound waves. And they're, if you imagine 
um, any vessel you pour water into, the shape of that vessel determines any wave activity in it. And so the pyramids dictate a lot of the sound focusing that occurs, especially in the low frequency ranges in the Earth's resonances on our planet. And so that's what I'm really tracking. Um, and of course, the events in uh, for the CME that hit us on the 8th of September, they unfolded um, in San Diego, California with the, or no, excuse me, in, in Yuma, Arizona with a electrical power substation blowout and 3 million people losing electricity for half a day or something. So these things are uh, things I've forecast and which have unfolded clearly in the order that I've described in the perfect timing and the locations where this energy has been focusing um, have been right on. So, for example, the um, Laukvik, I believe, is the location where the um, ground currents was measured in the magnetic shock wave. That's exactly at 11.0% of the Earth's mean circumference from the Great Pyramid. And, of course, there are other temples and anomalies that I've tracked at that exact distance as well. And the substation in Yuma, Arizona, that blew up was also on a hot spot. And I'm looking for that distance right now. Um, not finding it, but there's so much data I've piled up for these events that now it's really coming to a head and unfolding in fascinating ways that many people have nothing to connect, um, don't, you know, have no means to connect the dots. And I'm pulling out a piece for people to see that in, you know, virtually every story that I cover on the Time Cycle page on my website, people can really um, see mathematics of sacred geometry at work. And it's not something that needs to be, um, you know, a new age concept that's vague. This is something that we can look at with solar flare activity and, you know, our own homes and what's happening. And where are some of the upcoming hot spots? the most potentially impacted? Well, um, I'll just go, you know, browse down the time cycle and list a bunch of places as, you know, they've been occurring recently. Um, there's, let's see, Pennsylvania, there's been booming locations, um, Swatara, Pennsylvania, and there's another, I think, Greenwich, Pennsylvania. I uh, could be wrong about that. But those events, um, really show new areas where potential fire, you know, spontaneous fire areas, um, where I definitely will be following in the future, following those those areas and the stories that will emerge there. But it's already happened in so many places, including Crewe, England, and Surrey, England, where crop circles are certainly known from the Wiltshire and Southern England areas, and Surrey is right outside London. We've got other stories from London. Um, so I'd say, you know, Fort Worth, there was a recent uh, unexplained explosion at an industri industrial chemical production plant in Waxahachie, Texas, which is near Fort Worth. And, of course, Fort Worth has had major electrical storms, which I've documented on the site. Um, I mentioned the Cartagena, Colombia hotspot, and we've got the Santa Barbara hotspots of the same type. There was just a gas main explosion, which is related to these energies happening in uh, Kuala Lumpur, Malaysia. Um, there's another story from Kuala Lumpur just a few weeks before that as well, where spontaneous fires were breaking out in homes. Um, 
So the list goes on, and you can continue down. We've got uh, spontaneous human combustion in Galway, Ireland. We've got Coventry, England, same thing. Man suffers 50% burns. Um, his house was fairly unaffected. Um, so Dublin, Ireland, we've got major events. We've got Darwin, Australia. We've got Windsor, Ontario is one where the government, the municipal government is trying to deal with people and, of course, ignoring my information, which I presented through Facebook to them. And they certainly don't want to hear that it's going to get worse and that fires could break out in these areas where people are hearing these hums. So certainly I find myself in a position where I don't have much help from any authorities anywhere to get this information out to help people. So it's up to you and I. And we're doing it, so this is this is how it has to be. But exactly. <laughs> if people are in these areas, what would you recommend, other than relocation, additional things that they can do to prepare themselves for spontaneous fires and other earth changes? Well, I would recommend. You know, the thing would be for local authorities to have an infrasound measurement device where you know it's studied and known what when the level spike of low frequency sound, what threshold um, you can give a warning at where people should, um, you know, possibly evacuate. And so certainly in the lack of uh, municipal government efforts to do that, I could recommend that citizens to, could get together in these areas, for example, in Windsor, Ontario, in Ranchlands, Calgary, where, you know, in um, Bridlington, Bridlington, England, in um, Wiltshire area, all these areas, you know, across the world, there are so many now, I, I just can't even do them all justice. But People in these areas um, need to band together and start building microphones and acknowledging that they, what they're hearing is bringing on other effects, like, for example, the shaking, uh, but more so bringing on effects that are well known now because of my work and putting all these stories together. You can see clear patterns forming. For example, all metal objects can potentially get hot and thereby ignite uh, flammable objects in contact with them. So, for example, curtains curtain rods igniting curtains hanging on them, or clothing, cotton clothing igniting on uh, metal hangers, or door knockers igniting doors, or um, wheelbarrows igniting objects in organic matter. Um, you know, there are so many examples. And even, you know, it's been recorded that, and I describe in my book, Veil of Invisibility, um, of people working near cell phone towers who forget to take off their jewelry getting burnt because the metal is getting hot from the wave emissions of the cell phone tower. So this is a well-known phenomenon that's really, um, you know, something people need to, you can't just, it's serious, and you can't just um, get a grounding mat or plug that in, you know. I would... I would have recommended that 10 years ago, but the times now are more severe. And I would say that people really do need to consider evacuation from places like Puget Sound. You know, Puget Sound is an area that I continually look at and I continually see um, crazy events happening. You know, New York City, wow. You've got hundreds, literally hundreds of cases of manhole covers blowing off the manholes because they're all made out of metal and there's flammable gases in there. So when those metals superheat, they blast off. And this also just happened in Crewe, England. Um, two manhole covers blew off and injured two people. And there was after, specifically after an electrical power surge of unknown origin. 
So all of these things seem unusual when you read one story. When you go through my site and you read 250, 300 stories and you see these same objects in these houses, for example, the curtains going up spontaneously on fire, or more importantly, more commonly, bed mattresses are a big danger. Bed mattresses that have box springs, those springs are little resonators that accumulate energy like an orgone accumulator that someone might build for fun. Your bed mattress is doing that, and most people are sleeping on these things. I myself am not anymore, and you know that's one of the main things I, re- I you know, recommend to people is to think about the metal in their life and how they're using it. It's not just the um, electropollution we're talking about here. We're talking about something more intense that people really need to take to heart. In this next year, we'll, you're forecasting that we'll see continued increase amount of activity with this increased solar activity. I do. And, you know, if we had instrumentation around the world that's used to listen for nuclear activity and bomb activity, low-frequency sound arrays are present all around the world and are now being used for also um, earthquake measurements. These arrays can be, the data from them streaming through world computers can be used to study these phenomena that I'm speaking about. And it's, in fact, the uh, background data that they're screening out, which has all of this gold in it that will help us understand how solar flares are affecting different areas and help us um, make maps, prediction maps, of certain flares and where they may affect people. But, you know, at this point, I'm the only person working on this. So not only are we far from predictive maps, but we're far from, you know, anyone evacuating based on this information at all. Right. So really, it's it's out there. This information is for those few who are interested in it. And, you know, I'm I'm saddened by the fact that it is so few. But when I get emails every week from those few, it it's enough. And I'm really working for those who are ready to make big changes in their lives as a springboard. I want to offer people things to take that step that they haven't taken, not to evaluate out of fear, but to do it out of knowledge and about activating themselves energetically in a way that they know from the inside is right, in a way that nothing they've been, you know, involved in for a lot a lot of their lives has been. You know, a lot of us had a had a wonderful childhood that we we were involved with nature and then we left it. Um and so it's almost like we need to get back to that inner child and some people are ready. And I get emails from those people every week. So, you know, I get zero hate mail and all <laughs> love mail, which is so cool. That's a beautiful thing. So as we bring awareness and also get inspired to move communities, uh, share a little bit about copper as we relate it back to water and uh, transference of high vibratory frequencies through the copper to water and how it was utilized in the past and how Mm -hmm. we can utilize it in the present. Well, it's a, there's a long, long tradition that is still pretty clearly preserved in India, but I've been able to show very strong traces of it in the Americas as well, um, where energetic waters were being maintained that way, that would come out of the ground that way. But the ancient knowledge of how those energies imbued those waters in the ground was applied to how they should be kept and how they should be drank and how the user of these waters should live. Um, so 
in India, we have traditions, uh, for example, where copper vessels are used and waters from a spring will be put in a copper vessel that's placed in a niche or on a stone um, altar within the temple. And uh, the similar techniques, Ayurvedic techniques, have been used to use copper tubing uh, filled with essential high-energy essential oils, like, for example, eucalyptus or sandalwood or... Um, these oils will maintain a very high vibration and will transmit that um, through the copper tubes that they're placed in into wells that are stone-lined wells. Um, so this simple technology has been used um, in by modern people to you know to great scientific result, and we are now able to understand ancient structures in a new way to be able to see how simply they were achieving. Um, such amazing water purification results. Uh, one of the main uh, items that's so profoundly witnessed in all of the Andean temples um, that I've been to are stone niches where there's a kind of window, like trapezoidal window uh, carved into the structures or you know, the blocks leave a space there, only it's a closed, there's a stone backing in it. So it's like a niche, it's not a window at all. And these line all of the structures in these acoustic temples, um, giant megalithic temples throughout the Andes and Central America as well. And I have discovered that these are places for focusing energy for the human beings to literally use them like um, energy tools to resonate inside with their own brain. So if we imagine that temples were for sound focusing, then you could stimulate those acoustic spaces, not only by interaction with other pyramid sites around the world, but by sending energy out from your site, by um, generating sound in those spaces, by using acoustic instruments in those niche spaces and placing your head to blow into those instruments in those niches. And so the placement of these niches is all mathematically done. I've been able to determine that it's all acoustically based. And of course, we have ancient traditions um, in or ancient knowledge uh, systems coming from um, Egypt, which show that healing traditions, and I've covered this in my article, um, Levitation Basins, um, which goes into the work of Dr. Carmen Bolter, who produced the Pyramid Code um, television series. Um, Dr. Hakim in those videos speaks about niches where the head was put in by the healer to diagnose the patient standing on a stone slab at a certain place um, behind the healer. So, you know, the ancient knowledge does um, reiterate the, new, the, the scientific findings that we have, and we really need to start using these, these traditions. And so, of course, here in Lamana, one of my main goals is to take the beautiful red clay that we have coming out of the ground here on the property that we have now and to use it to create psychoacoustic ceramic vessels, which are based on the ancient Andean tradition from this from this region and which produce a bi-frequency resonance or a binaural beating in the brain, which synchronizes the two hemispheres of the brain. And so we're looking to not only do that, but achieve a trithalamic effect, which synchronizes the brain with the heart. And so that brain-heart connection is what the ancients were, I believe, um, generating not only in themselves, but aligning the heart and brain rhythms of everyone in every temple with everyone in every other temple around the world that's in alignment. And so that's a very complex com uh, you know, concept for most people. But you know, think about that. The heart, the human heart beating 
in rhythm at all of these temples worldwide and telepathy being enabled by that. Instead of cell phone towers, you walk into a pyramid and you make your your telepathic call. Let's talk a little bit about that because I, I communicate telepathically, but I don't have to walk into a pyramid. So what, what do you, and not with all people, but as my skill continues to increase, I notice that people that may not realize that they can hear, it's kind of like it's two-way radio. <laughs> you can't just hear, they, people can also hear what you're communicating the more you yeah. practice the skill. Do you feel the pyramids are a source of activation and then you come out of the pyramids and then you maintain that skill set for a while and then you have to be reactivated? Or do you feel the collective consciousness of the people that go into those pyramids will activate the other beings? Because again, if you're transmitting, you're also going to be hearing and vice versa. So it starts. You st- if oh, I start interacting with you, you're, you might start hearing mm-hmm. me, what I'm thinking, and yeah. back and forth. Well, yeah, well, that's exactly the, the, the reason why we use that term resonance. You know, my website, humanresonance.org, um, is, is so named because really the chicken or the egg. If you play a violin on one side of the room, the A string, and the violin on the other side of the room, the A string starts resonating with it, then, you know, that's the same concept that we have with human beings and ideas. And ancient knowledge, I think, is one of those um, crystalline sources of pure wisdom that we have where when we share it around, it really creates a DNA change because it creates a lifestyle change. That's the key is that lifestyle dictates your DNA and your growth, your activation. And so I think certainly meditation and coherence of your heart rate is directly reflected in how much fear you feel. You know, if you are a fear-loving person, if you love to go to watch a horror movie and your heart is racing or you love to jump out of an airplane and you get, you know, adrenaline rushes, these are the kinds of experiences which, um, in which you lose a lot of your energy because your heart is storing energy in its field. And when you meditate, your coherence of your heart is literally storing energy with you. And there's light that's even stored in that area where you meditate, if you meditate in a spot regularly. And so, you know, these are concepts that are invisible for people to experience. Although those of us who, you know, are investigating and having these um, experiences know that they're ongoing and that we are experiencing genetic changes that our abilities are, are enhanced. And, of course, lifestyle is the key. So I would say the practices that we engender are, you know, it's key to look at them. If you do yoga, that's great, you know. If you're in a city and you've got yoga is your way out of the stress, perfect way to to begin. And you need to recognize, too, that doing it on a rubber yoga mat and, you know, in an area with 100 people who all have their problems they're bringing from their day's work is not the best way to practice yoga and is not the the way it was practiced in the original teaching. So, you know, being in a stone temple is not something everyone can do, but we all have this inner sense where we're called to a special place to go to consider things and to reflect on the world. And I would say that those experiences lead us to places where the acoustic conditions are right for us to do that, for example. So, you know, when you say not everyone can be in a temple or, or people, some people have never been to a temple and they're having psychic experiences. Well, certainly there are hot spots where people do gravitate towards where they do find those, you know, extra dimensional um, resonances that, that, that allow them to, you know, to do what, what you do and what I've done, um, which is to really 
you know, use our third eye vision to create, um, manifest physical things in our world and images and uh, communications that bring stuff from our subconscious right to the fore of our mind and really, you know, stokes the memory that our, that the water in our body can allow us to access if we purify ourselves. You know, toxification is really, I think, the, the state of ignorance and the state of knowledge is represented by the purity of one's body by living in, in a natural way. So I think, you know, hair products and, and all of the uh, chemical treatment of the body is really the lifestyle change that people need to make is, is, is not just where they're living and these energies, but, you know, how they access sacred energy, knowing where they go, choosing to live in that way, not just to go have that place to visit where they can sit on that stone that brings them that enlightenment, but to plan their whole life around being with moving water nearby, having the sounds of water, having fresh water, you know, these, these things are essential to, to health, I think, and knowing ancient traditions in Ayurveda particularly allows us to access that wherever we are and make, you know, make a temple of our environment, uh, planting, especially planting uh, in, in Ayurvedic ways. So that's a whole other topic which we certainly should get into. Definitely. Finish that point. If you can give our uh, city dwellers quick tips on how to connect, decompress in a healthy lifestyle way in the sense that they can unplug to increase mm-hmm. maybe their resonance in the cities that they live mm-hmm. in right now. Sure. Well, I think certainly consider getting out into the world more for those activities where you're making compromises, you know, with the yoga. You're doing a great job by doing the yoga, but you're in a room full of energy that's not helping you. Um, Take that yoga routine and go out to the riverside, go out to the sand, um, you know, go out to the beach if you have that, go out to the pond. Um, These are, you know, a lot of city city dwellers... um, you know, have to have to make compromises and do every day. And the luxury that people have right now not to is, um, you know, has to do with with in deep inner knowing and that the earth does provide for us. And I think, you know, we need to think about all the activities and think about the holistic way they can be done and and not um, compromising in that. Because I know many people who say, wow, if I can heal myself just walking barefoot every day and drinking colloidal gold and silver, which is you know one of the most important things I recommend, well, then I can cure myself no problem. Okay, cool. And I get back to them and it's like, oh, I couldn't find the time to, you know, it's cold. And, you know, there are other solutions. You know, having moccasins is a great solution because, you know, Native Americans knew of this in their um, tradition. And, of course, moccasins are, you know, uh, piezoelectric, their skin, they're like our feet. They will conduct those currents for us. So I recommend natural footwear, no rubber, um, no jewelry on the body. But in fact, you know, the value of gold is in your body as a nanoparticle of the proper size. So using, um, you know, Ayurvedic technologies of gold and silver colloids is one of the keys if you know how to activate it. You know, obsessing, you know, many people um, are caught up on the blue man who was on television and he's literally turned blue from overdosing on silver to millions of times the level recommended. And he's still alive because it's non-lethal. You know, you take any pharmaceutical and you overdose it by a million times and you'd be dead after a few times. 
So the fact is, colloidal silver, you know, this guy who took it, um, you know, he's obsessed with the material of it, and he's turning blue, and, you know, he's doing it on purpose. And the fact is, if he got electrical stimulation, that is the state when you are able to push out things from your body. And so I recommend for people to get electrical stimulation or bioelectrification if they're going to do the colloidal gold and silver. Because if not, they're going to have problems like this guy does. Not health problems but perhaps social problems because of their obsession. So, you know, no one should be turning blue in the face. Everyone should be healing. And that needs to be done with a very little amount of colloidals, very, very, un, you know, below the level of, of taste and of the proper particle size from pure metals. This has to be done properly and in conjunction with, with electrical exposure from walking barefoot and swimming in lakes and in the ocean and rivers and you know, so all of these things are ways that Ayurveda can be brought into, you know, an average person's life in the city or in the suburbs if they can get out there to into natural settings. Thank you, Alex, for that wisdom. And this will conclude part one of our conversation. We will be posting part two in the next two days. Until then, I've placed the links to the books that we've referenced and the articles below. You can connect with those via the links direct, or you can just simply go to humanresonance.org. Again, that's humanresonance.org. Alex has taken a lot of time and been very diligent to put together material, photos, knowledge, mathematics that really bring all this information together. So I highly encourage you, if you're inspired, to connect and dive deeper. If you have questions for Alex and would like to send them our way, please feel free to contact him via his website or at humanresonance at gmail.com. Until next time, have a beautiful next moment. Enjoy the great outdoors. This is Suzanne signing out with Beirut and a Sunday smile. Encore une fois.